Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. When the documentary filmmaker Ken Burns thinks you've made a movie about author Flannery O'Connor worthy of a $200,000 prize awarded in Ken Burns' own name, you're doing pretty well. And when that movie is the first film you have ever made in your life, you're doing really well. That's the surprising story of my guest today, Father Mark Bosco, SJ, who is the Vice President for Mission and Ministry at Georgetown University. He's also a scholar of British and American Catholic literature, and as of this autumn, a prize-winning filmmaker. Years ago, Father Bosco was given a collection of archival video recordings that featured interviews of some of Flannery O'Connor's friends and contemporaries. At this point, I have to say, if you haven't read any of Flannery O'Connor's work, push pause on the podcast, go find one of her short stories or novels, and then come back here when you're done. Father Bosco wanted a way to share these video interviews with the world, but he didn't know the best way to do it. So he connected with Elizabeth Kaufman, a documentary filmmaker and professor at Loyola University Chicago, and they partnered to bring the film to life. Father Bosco and I talked about how the movie came into being, what the prize will help the filmmakers do, and why Flannery O'Connor is worth reading and studying today. Thanks for joining us. Well, Father Mark Bosco, thank you so much for joining us on AMDG. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. So I'm happy to sit down with you soon after this really exciting announcement about uh, this documentary film that you have produced called Flannery, about the, uh, the life and work of Flannery O'Connor, has been awarded the first ever Library of Congress Levine and Ken Burns Prize for Film. So that's really exciting news, and I'm excited to talk to you about the movie, how it came to be, and what you hope to do with this award. So first, why don't you tell me even about hearing from this uh, the awards committee that you had, you know, been uh, chosen out of all of the submissions uh, to receive this award. How did that? How did that happen? Yeah. So um, we, uh, my colleague and I, Elizabeth Kaufman, um, decided that we would apply for this uh, back last summer, and. Um, my, Elizabeth did a lot of the, 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 the heavy lifting for all the paperwork and at the application. We got it in just at the very last day of the application process. And in many ways, we kind of forgot about it because we weren't sure, you know, we, were, we knew we were competing with a lot of different films. Over 80 films uh, put in the application. Um, and I was, I was actually in a meeting here at Georgetown, and I get a text from Elizabeth, my, my, my co-director, co-producer, saying, I just got off the phone with Ken Burns. Uh, we just won the award. Um, so, of course, I was ecstatic, and um, we were talking uh, a lot. We also got a phone call from Carla Hayden, the um, uh, librarian of Congress. So uh, we were just kind of... Uh, just kind of overjoyed by this, but really surprised. I have to say, I think I pinched myself for the whole first couple of days. I was like, did this really happen? Um, yeah, so what, a, what an amazing experience. We had a gala dinner at the Library of Congress. Uh, we got to show a small clip of it. Ken Burns spoke beforehand and, and during the dinner to both Elizabeth and I, um, uh, really kind of praising uh, the film. So very, very excited. So Ken Burns obviously is this kind of lifted up sometimes as the leading documentarian uh, in the United States today. Just had his recent film, a series on country music, uh, released. Again, uh, written, done these productions on the Civil War and jazz music before that and baseball. What did he like about your film Flannery? Well, we, we kind of were inspired by the way Ken Burns did uh, documentary film. We won't, I, th I think what he most liked was the fact that in the one life of Flannery O'Connor, we could tell an American story. 
It was about America in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. It was about the South. It was about the dismantling of Jim Crow. It was a sense that in her one life and in her works, we were able to kind of tell the American experience in some ways uh, using a lot of archival film uh, from Georgia, from uh, New York, from Iowa, using a kind of um, sensibility of kind of going through history and a point of view of Flannery O'Connor. He liked all of that. Hmm. And I'm excited to talk a little bit about Flannery O'Connor and why you chose her. But first, even about the, the approach you took and in telling the story in making a, a documentary film. I know you are a literature scholar and have taught literature before. But I'm not sure if you made, have you made movies before? Is this something you've done? So I have not made any movies until this. This was a passion project. And what happened was I was already writing about and, 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 and um, publishing on Flannery O'Connor. And I realized that uh, I had been given some some uh, early uh, archival uh, films of interviews from a friend of mine, Christopher O'Hare, who now serves as kind of an executive producer. These films had, were of people who knew Flannery O'Connor, like Sally Fitzgerald and William Sessions and the, her publisher, uh, Robert Giroux. Um, and he gave these to me in about 2007, and I kind of sat on them because I was working on other projects. Uh, and in 2011, I realized these are amazing interviews. And I was hosting a conference at Loyola University in Chicago on Flannery O'Connor. And we were starting, I asked Elizabeth Kaufman to come and would you, would you interview these critics and these professors who are all writing about Flannery and why she's important? Uh, it was at that moment when uh, I realized um, we had something here. And since I knew nothing about film, uh, and Elizabeth Kaufman taught documentary filmmaking uh, at Loyola, I said, can we collaborate? Uh, and it's been a wonderful collaboration. We really consider ourselves kind of co-directors of this uh, of this film, co-producers. Um, so what I kind of call myself, I'm the Flannery O'Connor geek who kind of knew everything about her life and was kind of obsessive compulsive about it. Um, and uh, Elizabeth was really the, the talent and the crafts, craftsperson who could really put together uh, the narrative of this film and then working together on that. Was there anything that surprised you in that process of, of filmmaking? If you had sat down to write a book versus kind of approaching it this way, were there things that were different or things that you learned uh, about her or about uh, this, this approach? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, when you write a book, you kind of you close the door and you spend a lot of time by yourself thinking out, strategizing how you want to say something, um, going and doing research. But it's very much a solitary endeavor. The, doing a film is absolutely uh, the opposite. It's, uh, it's a collaborative effort. It's about listening to other people so at different levels of listening. So uh, listening to where Elizabeth, uh, where Ted Harden, our cinematographer, is coming from, trying to uh, look at um, uh, different people who knew Flannery, talking to lawyers, talking to um, artists who loved Flannery O'Connor. It was a different way of putting together a kind of narrative arc uh, of, uh, in a film. And so in many ways, uh, I learned so much uh, just as a scholar, but also uh, just learned how incredibly um, um, complex and collaborative filmmaking is. So I would love to get into the the subject matter of the film and, and why you decided to make this now. Flannery O'Connor, when did Flannery O'Connor die? She was born in 1925, and she died in 1964, and she died at the age of 39 from lupus. Right, so this, again, known as this woman who died too, too young and, and too soon, um, a long time ago, decades ago. Why, why now? 
Why Flannery O'Connor documentary in 2019? Yeah, you know, there was no... I think Flannery O'Connor's life is so interesting. The more and more, more I wrote about her stories, the more and more I kind of fell in love with the writer. And especially if you read The Habit of Being, Sally Fitzgerald's compendium of Flannery O'Connor's letters, you really get this, you kind of get the biography, you get the story of a life told in the relationships that were important to her. And just with that alone, I thought, this is a life that should be, that should be talked about. This is a life that could be filmed as a documentary. So um, partly it was that, that idea that nobody had really done a good job of that. And I thought that, you know, she has been sometimes marginalized. She's not Hemingway or Faulkner, but in some ways I think she's, she stands up to them quite well. How do we get her to, to, to be uh, celebrated, read, talked about at that level of American arts and literature? Uh, so that was really the reason. And having had some of these early interviews that were done in the late 1990s, of friends of hers, like Sally Fitzgerald and Rob Giroux and Bill Sessions and, and, her, and uh, many people who are now passed away, I thought, we just have this treasure trove of, of people who knew her, people who uh, were, were moved by her work, um, and it was a great story to tell. You have Flannery O'Connor's life and her work, which, which come together. You can't really separate those. Uh, so for folks who might not be as familiar with her own story, could you just do a little introduction to who Flannery O'Connor was? Sure. Uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, was a, a Southern, uh, born, in the, born in the South, born in Savannah, Georgia, from a, a, in a Catholic family. There, you know, there, there were very few Catholics in the South, especially at that time. It, you know, that was the, quote, Bible Belt uh, of kind of a Protestant world. And so Catholics were kind of both um, suspect in some ways, but because they were, she came from a kind of a white privileged background, she was also part of the, the world of Southern uh, you know, kind of um, gentility. Uh, born in 1925 in Savannah um, into uh, two Catholic families that uh, uh, were in the marriage and um, moves to Milledgeville, Georgia, grows up there, has a satirical wit, um, is already doing cartoons at the age of five and eight that are quite humorous, but also well-crafted, um, and has this, this desire really to, uh, to be a writer. She uh, is a devout Catholic, goes to Mass every day, uh, and she read Thomas Aquinas, and she read Jacques Maritain, uh, the great, you know, kind of uh, um, neo-Thomist of the 20th century. She's reading Heidegger when Heidegger comes out into English from the German. So she's this, this intellectually um, curious, uh, deeply engaged uh, woman who's, whose whole personality is kind of informed by that. She begins to write at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which is the the premier uh, writer's MFA program in the country. Um, she gets a, a, a book deal. She writes this novel. Um, and her, all of her work, her novels, her short stories, really kind of come out of this, um, her, as she would say, she, as I write because I'm a Catholic. Uh, I write this kind of way. Her, her novels, her stories are violent. They're, there's a lot of characters who are almost like what we would call grotesque. Um, and yet at the same time, she really takes you on a journey and she kind of like hooks you in and then uh, and really kind of um, uh, kind of snaps you into a new position, a new place to think about not only the characters, but your, your relationship, not only to the stories, but really your relationship to the cosmos. She's really telling parables, religious parables uh, in her in these stories. And what's wonderful about it is you don't have to be Catholic 
to love Flannery O'Connor. Matter of fact, most of the early critics were not Catholics and kind of didn't know what to do with that stuff, right? Um, they did it out of a psychoanalytic kind of perspective, or they did it out of a, a um, political stuff, or they did it out of Southern kind of, uh, of lenses. But really, throughout it all, the consistent thing is her Roman Catholicism. So doing a film about her life, there were like four pillars that Elizabeth Kaufman and I thought had to be always present in the film because it was about her life. It also comes up in her stories. And it somehow drew artists to her. And the third part of our film is listening to artists say why Flannery O'Connor has been so important to them and why she's important to the American experience. What were those four pillars? That she was a Roman Catholic and a devout, intellectually vibrant one. Number two, she was a woman making her way into the world of serious fiction in the 1950s um, and really negotiating a man's world and doing it uh, as as an individual, doing it with her, 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 her genius. Thirdly, she was a Southerner. She was a white woman of the South. Uh, watching uh, the dismantling of the Jim Crow South, um, having to deal with race, uh, civil rights, um, but coming at it as a white Southern woman, right? And so her own kind of negotiating that that happened. So the South and racism was the third. And the fourth pillar, disability. She, um, She discovers that she has lupus at the age of 25. Her father dies of lupus when she's 15. Um, and she, um, and she has a sense of the impending death as a kind of uh, almost a, um, as, a as, as all of her work is a race to the finish line, a sense that everything I must do, uh, everything I do must be um, um, uh, serious, it must be to the point, it must be for this goal, because I think she had a sense that there was a kind of uh, death was hovering around her. I remember when I first heard about Flannery O'Connor in high school as a young Catholic myself, who was going to be an English major since the time I knew what that meant, uh, picking up a, a book, being given a gift of a, her short story book, and thinking, oh, this will be some nice comforting religious fiction for me or something, just because I had heard very little, and then immediately being disturbed almost beyond belief, because as you're saying, there's a lot of darkness in those stories, never just, sometimes it feels like there's, and there's no redeeming quality at the end of uh, many of the, the stories. Uh, so... Yeah, tell me about that. What is your reaction to? Do you remember when you first discovered her? And so when I when I teach Flannery O'Connor, I, I taught a seminar here at Georgetown about twenty four students. We read everything by Flannery O'Connor. It was just a great class. We started with a good man is hard to find, and you know I say to the students, "Did you notice how many dead bodies there are at the end of this story?" Uh, and then I say, "And she's a Roman Catholic, and she says that in many ways all of her." Um, her stories are about this consciousness about who God is and our place before God. Most of her stories are about a humbling experience. Her characters are filled with their self-importance. They think they're the masters of the universe. They're mostly white in a southern place where they're kind of at the top of the the totem pole. And they kind of get their comeuppance. They, they're brought low, to use a kind of a gospel uh, um, kind of phrase. They're brought low, they're made low, in order to kind of have a new perspective and, and see um, reality almost as if for the first time. I think that in many ways, her aesthetics of violence, the, her, the darkness, is there to shake us out of our complacency. She's writing for people who, first of all, don't probably believe in God. She even says that once. She says, my readers are people who really don't take God seriously anymore in the world. She's writing about people who, uh, who are basically uh, educated, uh, and she's, reading, she's writing about characters who are hillbillies, 
who are um, what, she, what was called the poor white trash uh, of, of, of her generation. Um, and she's kind of telling a story. So she tells the story of race. She tells the story of violence. She tells the story of anger and resentment. Um, but there's always a moment at the end of every story where the character gets it. Now, usually they get it and they die. <laughs> so there's this wonderful ending of A Good Man is Hard to Find, her signature story, where this, this grandmother, who really is a kind of a self-righteous woman, more like a child, uh, it's all about her, it's all about her, uh, and because of her actions, she gets her whole family killed. Uh, but there's this one moment when the killer, she realizes that the killer is, 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 is distraught, and he is a maniac, he's a... He's a he is a, he's a crazy, a violent person. But she reaches out to touch him for the first time because she thinks, oh my God, he's, he's a human being too who is suffering. And she's the grandmother for the very first time by reaching out to him. And then he kills her. Boom, boom, boom. Don't touch me, right? And she, Flannel O'Connor insisted that the grandmother died saved. She knew who she was for the very first time, but only for about three seconds. Hmm. But for Flannel O'Connor... As for Catholic faith, that's all you need. You just need to have that right relationship with the Lord and with the world for even three seconds, and that's all it counts. I think about one of my favorite stories of hers we used on a retreat when I was in a theology graduate school, uh, Revelation, when at the uh, end of the Her best story ever. Right, well, the end of the, the story, this kind of... Um, the main character gets this vision of this kind of parade to heaven, like kind of being led by you know those who are disabled and who don't fit in and who would be often kind of cast aside in this kind of jubilant march that's also kind of macabre. I mean, the, yeah. again, the whole thing in terms of, again, seeing some of that spirituality kind of bringing to the center some of these people who might be easier to kind of leave and who's st- the stories of, of whom are uncomfortable. Yeah, and that, that Revelation is, 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 I think, the most perfect short story of the 20th century. Um, and there's this wonderful moment when Ruby Turpin, who owns land, she owns a pig farm, um, uh, she has uh, African-American um, people working as, 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 as field hands on her, on her property, um, and she just thinks that she's wonderful, and she, th- she keeps on telling God, thank you, thank you for making me just the way I am. So it sounds so pretentious, right? There's that one moment in that where she looks up to heaven and she says, who do you think you are? And of course, she's talking to God, which, and we both laugh and we're both like, you know, yeah, I mean, imagine saying to God, who do you think you are, God? So uh, at her comeuppance is this, this revelation, as you say, this ladder going into heaven. Um, you know, it's interesting. She talks about class through a lot of her stories. Uh, she, talks about, she talks about the latent kind of pride that kind of motivates us through most of life. And she just tries to kind of uh, break that down. There's a wonderful line in, uh, in the film that we did uh, by a, a Flannery O'Connor scholar, uh, Bruce Gentry, and she, he basically says, to summarize, you know what, Flannery O'Connor's writing for recovering racists, but the reality is, is that we're all always recovering from racism. It's not like it happens once and we're never racist again. And so she's kind of thinking about the, the fact that we have to be brought back in these stories. Um, we have to be brought back to the fact that we always come from places of privilege and we always see things out of our own eyes. We need to be shaken out of, of those kinds of complacent places to see the, a bigger world. And, and the, world, the world, God sees it as well. So she's wrestling with issues of race and class and kind of the role of faith or lack of faith, big things that continue to be themes in America today, it seems like. Did you have that in your mind, kind of making some of those connections from some of those things she was noticing to ways that we are still wrestling with that today? 
When doing the film, uh, you know, we started this film really in earnest, I would say in 2013, and as Black Lives Matter uh, became a phenomenon uh, here in the United States and around the world, as, uh, as a person was um, killed by a white supremacist in Charlottesville, just a few hours away from here, from Georgetown, it was very clear to Elizabeth and I that race, um, that racism is, is, a, is a big part of, of why Flannery O'Connor uh, is important and with the rise of white supremacy. You know, Flannery O'Connor um, was living in a world where the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, was really against African Americans, Jews, and Catholics. Um, matter of fact, it, it, there's a, there was a saying that the KKK was against coons, uh, kikes, and Catholics, Catholics with a K. Um, and I just think that over the last couple of years, as we were doing the film, we saw Flannery O'Connor's perspective of having to grapple with the fact of these kinds of moments and admitting the latent racism that's in our world, literally what's in our church, uh, uh, within our country. And these stories allow us to walk through these moments of, of, uh, of insight into our own brokenness, our, into the, our own darkness. So I think racism was a big part of the last couple of years of doing this film. And we really, we were looking for, um, for archival footage. Uh, Elizabeth found great archival footage of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1950s and 60s in Georgia, uh, found great moments to show that what's going on today um, is very much what was going on then, that we think we've developed, we think we've become post-racial. That's really, uh, that's really a farce. We're not. So when you were, I'm going to stop here for a second and remember what question I was going for. Um, and I'll make sure we have it edited out. So when you teach students today, Flannery O'Connor, you mentioned having a, a seminar of students. What are the things that they're pulling out in this modern context? I think, first of all, just her, the artistry. Um, I've had students say, this was so good, but I don't know why it was good. I was so moved by the story, but I don't know why. What happened? Why? I mean, I don't like any of these characters. Why, why do I feel so like viscerally moved? And I keep on saying, because she was a, she was a, a genius in terms of, of her art. Uh, she's sui generis in that regard. Her short stories are that. So that's the first thing that students usually talk about, the fact that even if they don't like her story, her characters, uh, they, they, uh, they're almost in awe of her, her artistry. The, the second thing, obviously teaching this at a Catholic university like Georgetown, we spend a lot more time uh, on, on how her Catholic vision of, of uh, the world, her Catholic uh, intellectual life kind of informs uh, this. And I think students are kind of surprised by how uh, a Catholic she is. Um, and once they can figure out the key, they can, they can do it. But you have to almost be brought in to, to that. And so part of the first weeks of class are always trying to say, okay, if she's trying to use violence to shake you or shake her characters out of, out of complacency, to have a kind of vision, a clear vision for the very first time of a, a character's relationship to the cosmos or to God, um, how do we look for that? And so students begin to kind of see that as well. I will say that race is a big piece of it. When, we, when, when I teach this, uh, when I teach Flannery O'Connor, we have to deal with the N-word. And I actually ask kids in, in class, how do you want to deal with this when we read out loud? Because she's, got the, she's hearing the voice of Southern, southern uh, folks in the 50s and 60s. And for many Southern folks, um, 
they were racists. Uh, are they, are they racist, racism was part of their, their, their kind of spoken um, uh, exchanges. So the N-word becomes then big. And I think that's always a very powerful moment when the students have to negotiate that Flannery O'Connor is not using the N-word, but her characters are. Uh, Flannery O'Connor always uses the word black or negro, which was considered uh, a, a way to, to negotiate that in the 1950s and 60s. So yeah, it's very interesting. How do we do it? For the most part, when, instead of saying the N-word out loud, we usually end up saying negro or black. And the students feel the dissonance of reading it out loud but seeing on the page the N-word. Um, it's been a really wonderful experience of seeing how you can do that. I think, I think some of women um, are amazed that in some ways she's both feminist. You know, she hears this woman who kind of is taking on publishers, is taking on, she's got strong women characters. But at the same time, she's beholden to a kind of a patriarchal Catholic church. And it's another space where we have to kind of negotiate. I love Flannery O'Connor, but she seems like such a devout Catholic and all those male priests and male bishops. And it's a wonderful conversation to have, the texture of that. So O'Connor doesn't, she doesn't satisfy in the way that we feel some triumphant piece of Roman Catholic propaganda. She satisfies because she brings you into the place in the negotiations of life uh, that are very real for us today. Like, how do we, how can I be a woman? Uh, a devout, intellectually uh, um, a vibrant Catholic woman and negotiate the fact that in some ways it's a patriarchal church, right? How do I negotiate race uh, reading her words? Um, and I think the last thing that I've noticed more and more with my students is how they focus in on, well, this person doesn't have a, a leg, or this person doesn't have an arm, or this person has a, a bad foot. Uh, you know, The fact that the deformed body or the body of the intersex person in one of her stories they're fascinated with that. And so disability and the, and the way the body is, is portrayed has become more and more a conversation in my students' work. Which feels a big part of its kind of Catholic nature as well with that kind of real emphasis there. And even thinking for me, I just know a little bit some of these kind of quotes that are used of Flannery O'Connor's to describe her faith, the way it kind of, you know, if it's true and we believe this, then it kind of changes everything and informs everything. Even th- speaking about the Eucharist, like if it's a symbol, then like the hell with it, right? Like I, I want like the real thing. And if it's not real, then forget it. Um, where do you see kind of some of that uh, coming through? You've started to talk about it in some ways uh, in, in her, her worldview. But again, it's not, it's not a rosy one. I think Flannery O'Connor, um, more than any other writer that I've ever studied, has the doctrine of the incarnation at the centerpiece of how she understands her art and how she understands her faith. And of course, what is the doctrine of the incarnation? God made flesh. Uh, and her, her, the sense of the flesh, the sense of the body being the place where we will discover uh, God's grace acted out, acted upon us. Uh, and acted within the flesh. So here's this woman in the 1950s who writes this amazing story called A Temple of the Holy Ghost. And one of the, one of the great characters is what she calls a hermaphrodite, an intersexed uh, individual who's a circus freak at a circus going through town. Um, and she kind of uses the circus freak as this, what kind of body can be graced? Can an intersexed body be the place where we're going, the site where we will find God's grace? Uh, and it's this lovely story which almost puts the circus freak's intersexed dual, dual kind of sexuality in conversation with the Eucharist, which is a dual kind of uh, reality as well, a sacramental reality of 
how is it both the body of Christ and bread, right? And in the, in the end of the story, there's this kind of like imaginative, imaginative joining of these two things. Almost as if Flannery O'Connor has always saying, if you want to find Christ in the modern world, in this contemporary world of ours, you're going to have to go out and look for it in the freaks. You're going to have to go look it out, look out for it in these intersexed bodies. You're going to have to go look it out in these racist bodies. You're going to have to go look for it in these children. You're going to have to go look for it. The body is the place where salvation happens. And I think um, it took me a long time to figure that out myself. But the body is the most important thing. She's interested in broken bodies, uh, disturbed bodies. Uh, she's interested in... Uh, uh, Pro, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Proud bodies, people who are proud. And their bodies usually have some kind of comeuppance. But it's always the place where grace happens. I love hearing you talk about this and, and her approach. And for me, it just reminds me of my own love of, of literature and wanting to d- dive back into some of these things. I'd love to audit your class someday. Um, but I, I know we're at a time now when in higher ed, kind of more generally, there's, there's a kind of uh, different STEM topics are, are lifted up or kind of business preparatory classes. You know, we have all of those things. Um, but you seem to be making a compelling case for why study literature, why I kind of dig into the humanities that it kind of is a big part of being human. So what, yeah, what is the, do you make that pitch to, to students who are, who are wondering? Or why do you think it's important that we kind of engage both with the social realities of Flannery O'Connor's life, but also kind of dig into her art? I, I believe that, especially in our Roman Catholic tradition, that art uh, is a means and it mediates uh, our relationship to the divine and to transcendence. So whether it's painting or music or literature or, or, or anything like that, uh, uh, drama, I think in some ways it offers us an opportunity to ponder and reflect upon uh, our, our sense of ourselves and our sense of our world and our sense of that, of that in relationship to something transcendent, something divine. Flannery O'Connor um, and, and the humanities in general are absolutely essential to uh, Jesuit higher education because it is the place and the space where we see the production of culture. We see our faith produced in culture. We see our faith produced in, in the culture of architecture with great cathedrals and great churches. We see, our cult- we see our Catholic culture produced in music, in chant, in opera. We see our Catholic culture produced in literature like Flannery O'Connor, Gerard Manley Hopkins poetry. Walker Percy's novels, whatever it might be, because in some ways it's produced in these cultures. I'm interested, in, and, I'm, and I think my students are interested in saying, ah, there's something lasting, there's something universal, there's something in this particular story or this particular author or this particular song that offers us a universal kind of conversation to have about what it means to be a human being and what it means to be in relationship to God. One medium in which we can engage in some of those themes also is film. I want to bring it back to the movie just yeah. briefly, too. Uh, so in the, you had that chance, again, um, which is such a great, what I love about my job, talking to interesting people about interesting topics. You got to talk to really interesting people about Flannery O'Connor and her work, including you know authors like Alice Walker and Tobias Wolf, but then also the actor Tommy Lee Jones, Conan O'Brien is in there. What Do you remember any of those interviews, or one or more, that really kind of struck you and you maybe introduced you to a a new way of seeing Flannery O'Connor. What were some of those memorable ones? Yeah, for the most part, I, I was just—I've been struck over the last ten years of doing this at how many artists have truly loved Flannery O'Connor and were inspired by her. They—they they got her as artist first, 
It's like, and there's something about that that resonated with them. Um, we did so many different interviews and we learned so much. I guess uh, certainly Alice McDermott gave this wonderful interview about what it meant to be a writer and what Flannery O'Connor meant to her as a, as a, Catholic, as a Catholic. But the one that I think I was most fascinated with was uh, probably Hilton Owls from the New Yorker magazine. Here's this amazing critic, amazing writer, uh, uh, African-American, uh, who, who fell in love with Flannery O'Connor um, and saw something about her and, 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 and was able to take Flannery O'Connor into another space that I wouldn't usually take her in. I'm the Catholic Jesuit priest scholar. I'm going to always kind of move her back into the world that I know, which is her Catholicism. He really saw her uh, outside of that, saw why she was important. Uh, from outside of her Catholic culture. So uh, that was probably the, the one of the most important things. The one person we didn't get in the film was Bruce Springsteen. Um, and I, that was the one I really, really wish we could have. But um, he was uh, on Broadway. He wasn't taking any interviews. Um, but I, again, he says that, um, you know, Fanny O'Connor is such an important uh, person to his, uh, to his work. Um, he said uh, he really that the whole album Nebraska was, was, was inspired by rereading her short stories. So just a whole slew of different people like that. Um, I would say the other thing that I was most impressed with when doing the film was in doing the archival work with Elizabeth, my, my colleague, we really got to see things uh, that had not been seen before. And, and so I, picking up the little ticket that she had from Lourdes, that, for her ticket to go into the baths uh, of Lourdes, uh, to have a to to be washed in the waters of Lourdes, I thought, wow, this is a, this is such an interesting little thing. Or picking up her her college journal, uh, where she talks about for the first time wanting to be a a writer, and be a realist writer. Um, those things just holding in your hands. You know, we Catholics think of everything as sacramental, right? And I kind of felt this sacramental connection with Flannery O'Connor holding these things in my hand. If we want to be able to see some of those things and hear these interviews, how will we be able to, to see the film? So, so right now the film is uh, going through some film festivals. It, it uh, premiered in Arkansas. Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival is the oldest documentary film festival in the country on 28, 29 years. It just left um, the New Orleans Film Festival where it had two showings, and it's going to be an Austin fest Film Festival. We're going to be in some of those film festivals, but right at this very moment, we're in conversations uh, with PBS American Masters. Uh, we should have some information pretty soon, uh, within the next week or so, I think, um, about whether there'll be a national broadcast there or somewhere else. But we're pretty confident uh, that, the, that PBS is obviously interested. With Ken Burns, who I call Mr. PBS himself, uh, very much um, uh, engaged and excited about our film uh, with this award, um, we're, uh, we're really um, consulting with him as much as we can on moving this forward. Sure. And that is one thing we didn't even touch on. The film is, is finished, has been made, but what does the, does the award help you to do? The award helps us first pay off some of our debts. You know, to do a film of this caliber was a very expensive uh, endeavor. We had NEH grant money. We wrote to foundations. I raised money as a producer uh, as well. Um, but we still had some debts. So part of that money will go to pay off some of those debts. Uh, secondly, every time you use an archival piece of, 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 of film or a photograph, we have to pay, you know, obviously copyright. And so part of that, will to move it from film festival to... Um, to a, a national broadcast, we will have to uh, re-up on our copyright um, payments. Um, and then some, just to kind of get us out to different places throughout the country, 
uh, perhaps out throughout the world, uh, to bring the film to places to allow us to get there. Um, and also, finally, um, because of, of Flannery O'Connor's um, death uh, brought on by lupus, we've been really sensitive to uh, offer tickets and offer um, engagement with the Lupus Society around different places in the United States. So some of the money will go to kind of um, make that connection because I think she's probably the most um, important artist of America who, who suffered under lupus, with lupus. Well, Father Mark Bosco, thank you so much for chatting with us. Congratulations again on the award and be uh, excited to uh, stay tuned for news about how we'll be able to, to see the film uh, and all the best to you and uh, best luck with ever, whatever project comes next. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure to be with you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Doris Sump, Megan Leipsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Thank you.